Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Envision Consulting and the host of the podcast, Nonprofit on the Rocks. Before the pandemic, the part of my job that I loved the most was going on happy hours with my clients, with nonprofit leaders, and just anybody who was a badass do-gooder in nonprofit. Over drinks, I'd learn why they got into nonprofit, what inspires them, what keeps them motivated, and what drives them insane. When everything shut down, I realized how much I missed those conversations. And honestly, drinking alone right now isn't that much fun. So then it occurred to me that not only do these conversations not have to end, but maybe there are like one or two listeners out there who'd like to listen. People like me, who are tired of the same boring industry podcast and want something different. So pull up a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join me in the conversation. How do you like my stir stick? I'm very impressed with that stir stick, yeah, right? That one's good. So welcome back, everybody, to our... Rachel and I have decided four listeners. She thinks five. I'm going with four. She's more excited than I am. I am take two with Rachel Fine, who is the executive director and CEO of the Wallace Theater in Beverly Hills. And before we start, what are you drinking today, Rachel? Well, this was kind of a rush job, Matt. In our last meeting, I had a vodka martini up with olives, dirty a little bit, lots of olives. This time I made the same drink and I just threw it over ice. So... I don't know if that's like the sloppy version or if people actually, you know, the connoisseurs out there really love drinking it just over ice, but there was no, no shaker involved this time. No art, no art to this one. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit disappointed. However, if we were continuing from last time, you've already had a beautiful drink. So, you know, your second one should be sloppy. And I <laughs> am pouring myself four roses. Neat. All right. Because it's been a day. And I kind of wanted to tell you how my day started, just so you know. And then, by the way, cheers. Cheers. Happy, Cheers. happy, happy Cheers. Wednesday. Happy right? Wednesday. It is Wednesday today. Only two more days before Saturday. Before Saturday, which feels like every other day right now. So I woke up to like 19 texts from my friends because Halloween, I don't know if you know that about me. Halloween is my favorite holiday. I don't have children, but I love it. And I go crazy and decorate my house like insanity. And we live in Toluca Lake, which has like, I think last year we gave out 3,500 pieces of candy. It's no insane and we have a huge party every year and you know our you know three listeners can come and join our party but this year i got a text that like la county was said we're canceling halloween no trick-or-treating and by the way no parties the only people you can have in your house are the people who live there and so like everybody was furious tons of texts going around i think this was like 8 a.m and i just got a text right before that said we've reversed the order trick-or-treating is highly discouraged but please do it if you feel like it so Okay, so I feel like the day ended okay for me anyway. <laughs> we'll see. Well, I've not yet talked to my children about this disappointing news. So um, I have yet to uh, check in with them and I haven't seen any tears yet. So I'm just curious to know if they even know. But I can only imagine that if the county and the CDC is discouraging it, their school will probably discourage it as well. And uh, maybe they'll surprise them with little you know, Halloween baskets on our front porch. I don't know. Well, listen, if you want to uh, come to a crazy neighborhood and just do a drive-by, I will literally run out of my house and throw candy into your car. I'm happy to do that for you. Like, okay, I'm... I will. I will. I will give your invitation to my two girls. Please do. 
this is my really enjoy that. Yeah. Please do. It's my favorite, favorite, <laughs> favorite holiday. And I, I think last time I told you I couldn't figure out my microphone. So this time we, it's now official. It's up. And I tried taking a picture of myself with it, and I look terrible. So I know that you viewers can't, no, can't see don't. me, you but don't. I look. And in fact, you don't look terrible at horrible. all. I wish that everyone listening to this podcast could see how great you look behind the gigantic microphone which uh resembles being in a radio studio i think well, you look professional no, that's, that's what classy microphone that's what i want you to believe i want you to believe that i'm professional so on that note so i think last time <laughs> last time we talked a lot about how people could get into this world um on the other side especially on the acting side and the theater side and what i really wanted to talk we talked a little bit about you and I remember we talked about the word pianist a lot, but what I'd like to talk a little bit today about is you and how you got to where you are, because I think that's really important. I think people want to hear that. And I also want to talk a little bit about what it means, like what it actually means to run a theater, because I think a lot of people think it's this glamorous, wonderful thing, but no job is. So I have to tell you before we launch in to my history, my favorite conversation regarding running a theater often takes place on an airplane where you're meeting someone for the first time and you say, I work in the arts and I run a theater, I'm the executive director, and they ask you if it's a full-time job. So I think, you know, <laughs> God, that just must be so fun, so luxurious. And is that, is that full, do you get paid to do that? Yes. So, you know, I think we can just clarify things up front. It can be 60, 80 hours a week easily, a lot of night work involved in running a performing arts organization and a theater and an orchestra. And it does, it is a full-time salary position, in fact. So, and I didn't know that actually growing up. It never occurred to me because I was a pianist, as we discussed last time, a very serious pianist locked in my practice room. It never occurred to me that there was a team of people, you know, working behind the scenes, to make the symphony concert that I was attending with my parents possible or to help the pianist. Like somebody had to move that piano on stage. Right. Never, ever crossed my mind that anyone had a job doing those things. Well, and somebody um, has to pay the bills too to make it happen. So, I mean, you have a yes. budget. You got to figure out how yes. you can actually yes. put on yes. this production, right? There's a budget. And in fact, you know, we talked about opera last time. It is very expensive, high risk. Um, and when you're running an opera company, yeah, another 60 to 80 uh, hours a week easily. And um, uh, you, you get a salary depending on um, the size uh, and the uh, reputation of the opera company. So I'm curious of the, like, you know, national theaters in this country, like the actual like reputable theaters in this country. Do they go out of business? I mean, do they, do they shut down? Absolutely. And I think it's going to be interesting to see who perseveres? You know, we don't know when this is going to end. We do not know when this pandemic is going to end. And I think everybody is creating scenario after scenario after scenario, you know, not just artistic programming, but also financial scenarios, outdoor plans, socially spaced, you know, socially distant seating, very few performances at this point um, have, have actually taken place. I don't know if you listen to The Daily, The New York Times, The Daily, but there was a great segment on Friday about a company in the Berkshires um, putting on Stephen Schwartz's Godspell and you know the trials and tribulations during the pandemic and social distancing and trying to make this thing happen you know and that's one out of what thousands and thousands of arts organizations and companies and now I've gone off on a tangent I can't remember your question 
Well, I'm going to let my dog out. Also, I love the dog in the background. <laughs> He's so happy. Yeah. We've got, do you think that the dog counts as one of our listeners? Because you literally just, well, here's you know what, what happened. But you just kicked her out, which means we've lost one. <laughs> you just literally <laughs> kicked her out. <laughs> Is she barking to be like, hey, I'm done, guys. I don't want to listen to this anymore. <laughs> Right. To listen to me do this all day long. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, post-COVID then. And I know it's impossible to really think about it, but how many theaters do you think, what percentage of theaters across the country are going to shut down? I actually, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't begin to tell you. And one of the, you know, in some ways, the more established, the bigger organizations, I think, are going to have a harder time uh, reopening. That's not to say that they won't, but sometimes the smaller organization is the more nimble organization. And I was actually just talking to my very close friend at Long Beach Opera. Her name is Jenny Rivera, and she called me earlier today to talk about the fact that Long Beach Opera is poised to handle something like this pandemic because they've always been progressive. They've done a lot of outdoor performances over their totally unique and distinctive history. And I mean, I just love the way she's thinking because uh, there's a resiliency and a resourcefulness in her thinking and the way the company works that I think they're gonna get through this. They really are, they're made for this and they're small. You know, so I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. I mean, I know everybody's struggling. Nobody has any earned income coming in right now. We're all reliant on contributed income, every single one of us, and the generosity of our, you know, core family members who are all being hit up by every organization. And I would say in the arts, too, we're really relying on the people who prioritize the arts above almost everything else. I mean, it's very hard for us to compete with a food bank and organizations that, address basic human needs. So we're just constantly trying to make a case for ourselves, like we're about humanity. You know, when we reopen, we're about building community. I mean, there, it's hard. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's very, very complicated. So, but I, you know, I know I'm seeing more and more theaters cancel their seasons. Right. You know, a lot of people were holding out and waiting, uh, you know, suggesting that they might be able to open in January, February. Um, but I'm saying I'm seeing more organizations cancel. So for example, the Los Angeles Master Chorale, which is phenomenal organization, is a resident company at um, the Music Center. They perform in Walt Disney Concert Hall. They did cancel their season. And I think they couldn't make the economics work, even with their multiple scenarios. So what they've decided to do is sort of respond to information as they, instead of trying to do a long-term plan, sort of do the opposite, which is, okay, if we find out we can open in March, we're going to respond to that, you know, and sort of figuring out, okay, how much time do we need to put this program in place? And how much time do we need to rehearse? How much time do we need to sell tickets? But I think they finally just thought, it's not worth it to try to keep this going without knowing what the future holds and what our environment looks like and whether or not we're going to have a vaccine. So, we're just going to respond when we have more information. And I wouldn't say they're small. They're the single biggest chorus, I think, in the United States. Nice. But they're also, they don't have a hundred and whatever, $50 million budget like the LA Phil. And I don't know how many unions the LA Phil has to work with. So, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I know it's a, I know everybody's asking that question. I'm, I'm so, so I'm just out of, again, curiosity because it's not something I thought we were going to talk about, but of the theater like so all the theaters in new york are dark except for what i learned that there's like this one light on the stage that stays on right like the one there's the ghost light the ghost light right that stays on 
at all times when it's dark, yeah. right? That, but, and I, we can get to that in a minute. But so are, are all the staff or all the actors or all the, you know, everybody else or just, everybody's just on, on hold, on layoff, on what are they, they what's happening? Laid off or furloughed, unemployment, work share. I mean, you name it, there's, and it's true for my staff too. There's, there are very, very few people. We furloughed a lot of people and of the people who are still working, virtually everyone is um, not working full time. Got it. Not right now. So can you tell people really quickly about that light, the light on the stage? Because I thought this was such a cool story when I heard about it. It's such a cool story. I'm not an expert. You tell the story. Oh. Uh, you tell the story. Tell me what you know about the ghost light. Crap. See, I knew you were going to do that. You know, I'm a classical pianist. I'm not a theater person. <laughs> but I will tell you, when I was being interviewed for the Wallace, that was one of the questions. What's the ghost light? Not, I knew what that light was because, you know, I've been running an orchestra. So. I think it... Wasn't it like something just like something like there was like a theater was like down for like, I don't know, two weeks or something like that. And there was like this this one light. They turned everything else off or something. Maybe there was a fire and there was just like this one light that stayed on. And so they just called it the ghost light. Maybe am I making that? I'm totally making that shit up. We're both going to have to go back to our history books. (laughs) I also think it's a safety mechanism. You know, I don't think you ever want the stage, um, which has so many intricacies and ropes and, you know, rigging and all of these things. You don't ever want it to be totally dark. That's right. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm just going to go with, I'm going to go for whatever reason, the Phantom of the Opera came into my head and there's just this light that's always going to be on no matter what. So I like it. That's what I'm going to go with. Okay. So let's get back to you. <laughs> so if you could go back to yourself in your twenties and tell yourself, here you are, you've made it to be the executive director and CEO of a really large, amazing theater. What do you tell yourself? Like what's something you tell yourself that, you know, you should have known or you wish you had known? Well, it's a great question, and I, I actually do have a situation in my life where I'm giving advice to young, impressionable, smart people, and those are my children. Um, and I have one in particular who's 16, and she's interested in a lot of things. She is interested in music, and she does a number of musical activities very seriously, but she is interested in a lot of other things, too. She's a dancer. She's a great visual artist. And, you know, even outside of the arts, she she loves the humanities. And so, you know, my advice to her is really, I mean, I wouldn't... You know, classical music is one of those things where if you're not exhibiting talent from a very early age and working very, very hard to achieve new excellence and great artistry, uh, it's very unlikely that you will have a career as a performer. But it's difficult to know as a child, especially, you know, if you're immensely talented. I don't even think you think about it. You just do it. You just keep getting, like, good feedback and good, you know, wonderful praise about the fact that you're talented and, you know, you play well and you win competitions and so on and so forth. So, you know, from the time I was five up until 25, I just didn't think much about anything except piano and playing music. I did not know what was out there. And I think before either of my children make a decision about what they want to do, I want them to have a greater awareness of what is out there. I really do. And so my parents, it's funny, they encouraged me to do sports, but only in the summer. Like during the <laughs> academic year, I had to practice after school. So, you know, on the one hand, they wanted me to be you know, skilled, you know, in certain sports, but I was not allowed to do the team sports, which took up, you know, every afternoon. It just was not permitted. It was not an option. And I don't, you know, with my own children, if they want to do team sports at school, 
uh, we'll figure out how to fit music into the schedule that includes sports. So I just think having that awareness and exposing a young person to as much as possible. I mean, I didn't, I wish I had known about going to business school. I mean, that is something I think I would have absolutely loved. And I've taken a number of business courses and done a lot of leadership programs. But, you know, if you if, if I had known about it and uh, understood what an MBA could offer me, you know, even in the arts, I probably would have pursued an MBA. I mean, what made you take this job at the Wallace? And then I want to get, I do want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a CEO of a, of a theater, but what made you take this job? Why the Wallace? That's a great, great question because I was dead set on not taking the job and had actually had many conversations to say, look, I, I was an executive director for two different organizations prior to this one. I am so interested in doing something different. What I came to realize is that there is no place like the Wallace. And the people who founded the Wallace and everybody who contributed to the early days of the Wallace saw something in that building and that campus that was going to make it so distinctive and so special, ultimately. And they were right. They were right. And I, you know, I can name 10 things that make the Wallace a great campus aside from what we put on the stage. You know, first of all, the beauty of the space. I mean, architecturally, it is so significant. You have the historic building from 1933, and then you have Zoltan Pali's, you know, modern addition. And I think those things are married incredibly well. And the restoration of the original building is unprecedented, in my opinion. It also sits on a corner with so many other great architectural landmarks. So the gas station across the street. Oh, yeah, the gas station. gas station. The really overpriced Um, gas station that nobody should fill up their car with. (laughs) Well, and on occasion I have to because I'm desperate. But um, I I just put a few gallons in. No, but that gas station is really, really important. It's iconic space. You know, diagonally, we have Platinum Equity, which I think used to be a studio, but it's by Paul Williams. And then City Hall, you know, the addition to City Hall. I mean, first of all, City Hall is beautiful, but next door is the Charles Moore Building. So it's like this architectural corner that is just fantastic. Then you're surrounded by restaurants and retail. So when we're not in a pandemic and life is proceeding normally, you're just surrounded by foot traffic. And what Performing Arts Center in LA is just always surrounded by foot traffic. And then residents, right? You cross the street and you're in a residential neighborhood. So how many hundreds of people can actually walk to the Wallace? So aside from that, the theaters are truly extraordinary. They offer an intimacy that is not really offered in any other space, in my opinion. You know, we have we have a 500-seat theater and a 150-seat theater convertible space. And, you know, the second space is very flexible, so you can do a number of different things in that space. We also have a remarkable education wing. So this integration of education into the sort of architectural fabric of itself uh, was so enticing. Um, so all of those elements... But more than that, we were basically working with a blank slate. Right. So it is very complicated, I will tell you, in our field, when a building opens before there is a foundation of audience, donor, community support. So to put the building first, um, there have been so many catastrophes over time, you know, of people thinking that, you know, you do the building, people will come, right? Right. And I, that has not been my experience. 
Usually it is a very, very slow, methodical process of building an audience. I mean, you're building relationships is what you're building and you don't build relationships overnight, right? So, you know, I just, I love the idea of being a part of the startup. I really did. And sort of putting my mark with a whole team of other people, you know, on this truly remarkable place. And then, you know, aside from that, I don't know, like building the board, you know, into something that has been, I mean, that's been so rewarding is, I don't want to say building the board. I mean, I work with so many other people who have helped strengthen our board, engage our board, educate our board, get our board very uh, excited and full of pride for what we do. So yeah, all those reasons, like all of those opportunities were there. And what Michael said to me is that you will not have this opportunity probably ever again. So take it. So if you're going to stay in LA, you should do that. And to me, that's a great boss who says, look, we hired you. Yes, you've only been with us six or seven months, but you should go do this. Yeah, that's an amazing boss. That's what we try and say too, although um, they're dead to me when they leave me. So, <laughs> and if Tiffany, you're listening, you're dead to me. So would you really quickly tell folks what it means to be a CEO of a theater? Because you're not the artistic director. No. You are the person in charge of the money and the board and all that good stuff, the you know, staff, all of that. What does it mean to be a CEO of a theater? It's many, many, many things. Um, but the thing that comes to mind immediately is being the person who works with the board to set not the artistic vision, but the institutional vision. And the institutional vision is bigger and broader than the artistic vision. The artistic vision is so critical and it is, you know, the artistic intention, the artistic intent, whatever you want to call it, the, the programming that you put on your stages is so much of what makes the space animated, alive, important, vibrant, all of those things helps build your reputation. But we are many things beyond the artistic vision. We are a historic building. Uh, we're a landmark. We are an education program. Um, our education program, which is headed by Mark Slavkin, our director of education, is so critical to outreach, you know, reaching people who don't normally get to experience the arts, uh, building the next generation of, of arts audiences. I mean, you name it. So I feel that I have to look at all of these different things with our board and figure out what the path forward is going to be. It sounds yeah. like an impossible job. That's so many things. I mean, how do you sleep at night? It depends on the day. <laughs> Sometimes I sleep very, very well. I mean, you know, I think it's important to try to figure out what is in, what is within my control, right. right? And where can I work really, really hard and focus my effort and attention and my strategy and what is completely beyond my control. So this pandemic, there is nothing I can do to control this pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Nope. Um, so I am very, very focused on what I can nuance or influence or, you know, manage at this point in time. Yeah. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, I think you have to be a person who hires better people and more skilled people than you. That's really important. That's really important for people to so hear. Important. So I have a CFO who knows so much more than I do. He is a CPA. He is so skilled, years of experience. I wouldn't begin to tell you that I know more than he does about 
finance. There's no way. So I need someone that not only is more skilled and knowledgeable and experienced than I am, but who I trust. That's, but see, this is really important because what I see, what I see all the time, because, you know, we place a ton of people as executive directors, CEOs, right. I see ego everywhere. And what yeah. you're telling me is that you're placing people around you who are smarter than you. That means to me that your ego is, you know, in check and that you know that you need these people around you. And I appreciate that because a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't have that self-awareness. So I appreciate that in you. Well, Thank you. And that is not to say I don't have an ego. <laughs> I, no, no, seriously. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, yeah. We all have an ego. I mean, I am smarter than every other consultant. I'm <laughs> going to just say that right now. But <laughs> you know, we, just, we just need to keep our egos in check. And you have to do that every single day. Right. 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 Um, the people around you who make you look good, you have to give them the credit. You have to. I need to put myself aside and say, you know, it'd be nice for me to take this, you know, compliment our glory, but it doesn't belong to me. And that, that, that is a daily exercise. There's no doubt about it because I like, you know, praise and positive feedback as much as the next person. And uh, that is often what motivates people, you know, it is, but I also need to give credit where credit is due and to keep my ego in check. And, you know, humility is really important. It's just mm-hmm. really really is. I think that's really important. Okay. So we only have a few minutes and I want to get to a few lightning round questions, but before I do, I feel like this has been unwieldy. I don't think I answered any of I, your questions. I feel like, again, like we're going to somehow put all this together and you're going to sound amazing and wonderful and so smart and so talented and I'm not. So don't worry about it. No, you um, are. I don't every day. Every day I sound like an idiot. It's fine. <laughs> so I'd like to know why should somebody with everything that goes on, right? And I understand the difference. I understand the difference between artistic director and CEO in terms, and you, you describe that I think really well. Why should somebody want to be, why should they want to be a CEO of a theater? I mean, with all of the bullshit that's going on right now and, and furloughs and COVID and budgeting and everything else, boards, boards are a whole other story that we can talk about another time. Why, why should somebody want to be a CEO of a theater? What keeps you going? So, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And trust me, uh, people can earn a lot more money doing something else, you know, in the corporate sector. I just have a fundamental belief that the arts are not dispensable. You know, again, we can get back into this conversation, especially during a pandemic when people are having to prioritize their philanthropy, right. and that the arts aren't as important as working with the homeless. And Look, I think providing basic human needs is absolutely critical. But for me personally, they're equally important. And I see the arts saving lives. I see the, I see the arts uh, giving people a creative outlet. You know, I just think about, for example, mental illness. It's so much more accepting of someone who might have some kind of um, mental illness or setback. You know, often they're so smart and so creative. And sometimes those things just go hand in hand. And I, so I feel like there's a place in the arts, you know, for there's a, there's a understanding and an empathy and a compassion that might not be in other fields. So I, I could go on and on and on and on. I do think you need to feel that way though, to persevere 
in this this field. You just you have to feel that they're indispensable and that they are absolutely core to our community, you know, a healthy community. I also think arts education, I mean, it has been proven time and time again that children who engage in arts education do better in school, period. You know, and I was thinking too about when I was working in Juilliard, the number of faculty members who lived into their 80s and 90s, you know, I think by virtue of the fact that they were engaging with music every single day, like their mental capacity, um, like keeping their mental capacity at this level, you know? So there are just so many health benefits to, to being involved in the arts. And then, you know, you think about Los Angeles. I mean, it's, the arts are a tremendously important employer. You know, the arts economy in LA is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And I don't mean just entertainment. I mean like nonprofit arts too. Right. Um, huge employer. And, okay, let's say one more thing. People might think, you can't make any money in the arts. So I urge you to look up the salaries of people running large, large, large arts organizations. Trust oh, yeah. me. They're doing They're well. Doing <laughs> really well. If you go to the Chronicle Philanthropy and you look up the 10 highest salaries, you know, of arts organizations, everyone's doing very well for themselves. So, you know, sure, you may not be a multimillionaire, but you can have a very nice life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. funny. I think back to like, I wish I can go back to myself in high school and just tell myself to calm down. But like, if you think about who was in the arts, they were the coolest kids. I mean, like we all thought, you know, they were like the weirdos or the rejects or whatever, but they were the coolest kids. And I wish that I had hung out with them and they accepted. You're right. Like I think in the arts, you accept everybody doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what's going on, you accept them and they can, you know, we can all work together to really kick some ass and put on some amazing shows, but also just be there for each other. And I think that that's what the arts has that, you know, you can't find in other places. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Three questions. I'm going to let you go. So the first question is, Obviously, the number one person that you want to have a drink with and a cocktail with is me, obviously. But if I was not here and we just, you know, I wasn't here. I had COVID. I'm freaked out. I don't want to meet you in person, whatever. Who would you want, who in the world right now living, not dead, who would you want to have a cocktail with? My husband is a really extraordinary human being. And I am so fortunate to be married to someone who is as curious and smart and resourceful and, you know, I can go on and on and on. He's a great father too. And this pandemic has not allowed us really to go out ever and enjoy one another's company. So at this point in time, it would be him. I would really like to have a date night. I love Um, that. His work work is very strenuous right now. We have two children who are remote learning at home. And, you know, on the one hand, being at home with everybody has been very, very special. I don't think we're ever going to have this time again. But, you know, he and I have never been in the same space where we are observing each other, doing our work day in and day out. And it's really been fascinating. It's been fascinating. But, you know, at the same time, everyone's on a Zoom meeting, every yep. single member of the family. Yep. And you might as well not be in the same space sometimes because you don't really see each other and you're not communicating. So I, I would really like to go have a drink with him right now. I like that. That's really sweet. You know, it's funny, my sister, just on the, as an aside, and she's going to kill me for saying this, but whatever, she's not going to listen. So my sister went on a date night with her husband for the first time in all this pandemic and her kids screwed it up. 
and like totally broke the rules, didn't do what she asked them to do. And then they had to leave early to take care of them. So like, just be sure if you go get a cocktail with your husband, your kids are, you know, doing what they need to be doing. Cause. Okay. Well, that is really, really good advice. Unfortunately, we, I, really, we haven't, we haven't, it's been six months and we, we gotta do it. We've you got to do it. Unfortunately, sister is now staying with us. So maybe she'll like hold down the fort and make sure everybody like stays. In yeah. Life. You got to go out. You got to enjoy each other. Cause you're right. You're with each other every day, but even though you're in the same house, you're still not, it's not the same. No. Okay. So the second question, which is my favorite question that I totally am stealing from another show. I love okay. this question. Okay. If you could steal any artifact in any museum around the world, what would you take home? And you wouldn't get in trouble, obviously. Oh my goodness, don't you think that involves some thought? It does involve some thought, but come on. Like, I know what I would take, by the way. I would go to the, the Getty. I'd go to the Getty, and I'd take those irises from Van Gogh, and I'd bring it home, because that, to me, is so beautiful. Or, or I'd take the pink Marilyn, that really beautiful Warhol pink Marilyn. That's what I want. What would you take? Well, I have about 10 answers. <laughs> Give me one. But pop into your brain. I mean, I might try to get a hold of a Stradivarius cello. Oh, that's cool. You know, it's interesting because there are many more Stradivarius violins than there are other instruments, but he did make other instruments. A couple of years ago, uh, a Stradivarius viola went up on the auction block for $40 million. Wow. Um, Why don't you buy it? Come on. You could have bought it from that huge salary. I bid on it, but I didn't get it. (laughs) I don't know. You know, Yo-Yo Ma plays on a Stradivarius cello and... Um, to me, the cello is the most heavenly, heavenly instrument. So either that or a Mark Rothko painting, I think. I'd really have to think about it. I, I don't, it's hard, hard to say. I mean, we just Because yeah, I can't play the cello, so I don't, you know. You just put it, you put it behind glass, and then you have a Mark Rothko right above it, and you're cool. You're good to go. <laughs> and then you'll have a cocktail with your husband. Everybody wins. There you go. All right, my friend. Well, I, Rachel, I really, 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 really appreciate that you do this with me. And I hope, I hope that I made us look very good and very smart to the two listeners that I left and your dog, but your dog walked out of the room. So that's the end of that. And I really appreciate you being part of two shows. That's a big deal. Anytime. Anytime. So thank you very much. Oh, hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. What'd you think of that one? Was that uh, one of my best? You know, of the three you've done, that was in the top three. Okay. (laughs) Listen, listen, listen. From you, that's a lot. That's a lot. Because we we both know you're not really listening to this shit, right? You're not listening to it. No. No. And when I am listening to it, I'm listening to like 10 second intervals over and over again. So it's a very different experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, it's fine. Because again, no one's listening to this show. So we're cool. Although, 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 I feel like we need to get Rachel something really like, I don't know, something nice to thank her for talking to me twice. And no one's listening. I don't know, but Matt, what do you get for a woman who lives in Beverly Hills? I mean, <laughs> can we afford Rachel's taste? This is I what mean, I'm like. You going to like, Beverly Hills? You sending me? I feel, I feel like we can send her a pianist, right? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, did you pronounce that right? Is it pianist? Listen. Or, yeah. Easy, Ashley. I don't want our viewer to get upset and write us nasty letters that you're a big old homophobe. Okay, well, Matt, I have already checked the explicit box on this episode. So I can say pretty much whatever the fuck I want. (laughs) All right. Well, I am glad that you thought that was in our top three of three. I appreciate that. And uh, what do we have next? So super excited. You're going to be talking to Carlin Irvin, who is the VP of HR at Chrysalis, which is an organization that helps people out of poverty. 
Love Carlin. She's one of my favorites. She is hilarious. I loved this interview. And I think my favorite part is when you two go on about Beyonce, about the queen. Queen B, the queen B. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And we talked about the Louvre. Ah, I can't wait for people to hear that. Yes. So I think even if no one likes your podcast, Matt, or anything else you talk about as it pertains to nonprofit, if they like Beyonce, you you know, there's a little something for everyone. I mean, it's a given. It's a given that they're not going to listen to me. But the minute we talk about Queen B. Oh, and Jay-Z. I did, I did say some bad things about Jay-Z, but that's okay. So did, so did yeah, Carlin. So did Carlin. Listeners, I think your three listeners are going to be cool with it. I don't <laughs> think there's going to be too much flagging going on. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>